Well, welcome to the Anything But Typical podcast. And having Tana Green on here, that's definitely anything but typical. So I'm excited about that, and you guys should be too. But we're going to turn the typical intro on its head. I don't like the, hey, we've got Tana Green here today, and she's done this and that, and yada, 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 yada. You're going to hear about that anyway. But Tana, here's the scenario, and I want you to answer that. And that is, you are at a cocktail party. You are within earshot of your favorite competitor or a peer that you really admire, and they're talking about you, and they don't know that you're within earshot. What is it that you would hope that they would be saying about you? Gary, I would hope they would say... Um, she led with integrity. She used her values to make decisions mm. and she ignited joy and changed a lot of lives along the way. Mm. Well, what a great start. Exactly. So, so now I had to really summarize your, your background and experiences because it was quite the laundry list and I'll probably even run out of breath from this, but I'm going to give all the listeners a quick intro. So you started My Work Choice in 1988, and you've been running it for 32 years. It's a, a national staffing company uh, that really you've transformed into a contingent workforce solution. We're going to dive in deeper into that and exactly what that transition has looked like. Um, you're also a speaker and an author. Uh, your book is called Creating a World of Difference, and if the listeners out there have not read it yet, you need to go out and get it. Uh, it offers a blueprint for other successful entrepreneurs and business leaders to transform their professional lives and the organizations they lead. So we're towards the end of this, but you also have a lot of awards and honors. And so some of the top ones are you have two times been the largest woman-owned business in North Carolina, which is extremely impressive. You've been named one of the fastest growing companies through Inc. Magazine, and they also did a highlight article on you as well, which is phenomenal. Uh, American Express and other companies. And then you've been named a best workplace or a best place to work by Monster. And to top all that off, you also have found time to serve on multiple boards and give back to your community as well. So I'm going to have to catch my breath for a second after that, but we really appreciate having you on uh, or you coming on and, and really sharing your story with the listeners. So today's topic is about what's your competitive advantage and so to start that i want to go all the way back and really dig into what was your desire to own a business in the first place well that's a whole story unto itself but um i have to go back to my teen years because it all started then uh, i was um, a honor roll student i was the chaplain of my school it was 1974 and i was a freshman and what every girl wants when they're a freshman in high school is to get the boy. Well, I got the boy. I got the Mr. Popular who was a senior. By the summer of the between my ninth and tenth grade, I got pregnant. And a good Southern girl, I walked down the aisle and got married because that was what you were to do. Uh, I found myself in a domestic violence relationship and after two years of that, I finally reached out and got help uh, and I'll never forget the counselor said to me you have a choice to make there's nothing wrong with you it's the situation you're in and he named it and he says um, you need to decide if you're going to be a victim or a survivor wow. and I went home and I wish I still had that piece of paper I was 17 years old with a baby and I said what do I want out of life and I wrote four goals on a piece of paper one was to finish school because I had quit school um, two was to own my own home by the time I was 25. 
three was to marry a knight in shining armor somewhere, and four was to own my own business by the time I was 30. And I was able to accomplish all those. I had my finished high school. I didn't get my GED. I went back to the classroom. I went to a business school. I owned my first home at 22. I married my knight in shining armor at 26, and we're about to celebrate 35 years next month, and um, started the business that I'm currently in at 29. So everything was slightly ahead of schedule. Everything was slightly ahead, but it was goal-driven. That <laughs> yep. was the main main yeah. main reason. But I don't know where that owning my own business, except that I wanted to impact lives. I knew I wanted to help people, and I knew I could only do it my way if I owned it. So that was what was important to me, is something that I could do to help other people. And that's where the job placement came in, because I could help people get jobs. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's that's unbelievable. So you started that business at, at 29 and have obviously grown it phenomenally since. So what is really, I want to ask first about this. So I'm going to go a different direction. Sorry. What are some of the hurdles of a female or a woman starting a business in a male dominated industry? Because this is, your industry is certainly one of them, but you see this story all the time. And, and I want all the female listeners to be able to, to learn from your experience here? Well, I would have to say I think I was on a different path than most because I never saw it as an obstacle. Um, I just plowed through and did what I needed to do. I've since started mentoring other women and realized that you know they are experiencing this. Um, and what I would tell them is as long as you're leading from integrity and you understand your core values and you know why you're doing what you do, that will never be an obstacle because people will see you for what you're there for, not your gender. So to me, it's never been an obstacle. And um, I would encourage everybody to just push it aside and do what you know you're supposed to be doing. I love that. You know, when I met you a few years ago, <laughs> my business partner at the time said, uh, I don't remember who it was that connected us quite It was ever. Craig. Oh, it was Craig yes. Taylor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Yes. I uh, really appreciate that. But when I told my business partner who I was meeting, he said, and he had a company that was in the staffing business, and he said, oh, my gosh, you know, how in the world? And he was just really enamored by you as a, a businesswoman, but just your integrity, et cetera. And we had so much fun. And then we were doing a, a seminar, and you came up at break and said, we got to talk. And so I knew that at one point you had 10,000 W-2 employees, yes. right? And, um, and you said, hey, we got to talk. And we were talking a little bit about my work choice right. and the pivot that you were doing and the disruptor that my work choice really is. And so I want to hear a little bit about that evolution from oh, that's where exciting. you were to my work choice. Right, right, right. Well, um, biggest aha moment was is that you know in the staffing industry and we do light industrial and call centers so very large volume hourly workers um so what they'll do is use us as a means to hire it, at least in the old days so they would bring on 400 500 people as contingent workers to their 4,000, and if somebody did really good they would offer them the permanent job what well, wasn't working anymore people didn't want that we were having a hard time recruiting and we were also finding that um, 
the turnover in our industry was about 430% a year, which meant that if I needed 1,000 workers at this particular location, I was turning those over every two and a half months. Wow. So the business model didn't make sense anymore either because right. it was costing so much money to just to background check and process and get people going. And then we started studying it a little bit further, and it was like the absenteeism was 33% a day. With about the same time we had 1,000 people at a, at a location in South Carolina, and the time clock broke, and we said, we were in there doing it by hand. You know, we're taking the old time cards and trying to do it by hand. And we said, wait a minute. We don't have 1,000 people. We have about 1,800 people here. And so we said, how did we get 1,800 people? Because what happens is, is, you know, every day you get an order for people, and you're just shoving people in the door to show up right. mm-hmm. to, to do work. All of a sudden, we realized the average person was only working 24 and a half hours a week. Hmm. And that's happening at the same time we're getting the message of the high turnover, and we're saying, this doesn't work anymore. What would work? What is good for the people? Because, again, going back to the reason we started this was to help people. So we started playing around with, let's see if we can let them schedule when they want to work, because isn't that important to them? So we kind of used an off-the-shelf scheduler. We took one client in South Carolina, and we had about 400 people there, and we started letting them go onto this app and schedule. Our show rates went up higher. Our absenteeism went away completely. Hmm. And we said, we're on to something here. And so we built our own technology, our proprietary technology, to really allow these people to have dignity again. When I look at it, it's bringing dignity back to a workforce that doesn't exist. You need a job. You have life. You get into a 40-hour week job. Your car breaks down. That's one strike. Your mother gets sick. That's two strikes. You get sick. That's three strikes. You're fired by two and a half months. So a good worker was not able to survive because of life. And you look back, we created this 40-hour-a-week schedule over 100 years ago when only men worked. Well, they had the wives at home to do everything else. Well, now we're in a world where you have to juggle everything all at once. And a lot of people need the ability to work when they want. Now, they can work full 40s if they want to, but they can also work eight hours if they want. We break the shifts down. So if it's a mom, she can work four hours a day. If it's a student and they need extra income, they can work. They have midterms. They don't have to work. And they don't have to worry about losing the job because they can't show up for a schedule. So the outcomes of this was a 95% show rate, guaranteed no overtime to every client that we service. Huge. Happy workers, productive workers, because they've chosen to be there. Opportunities still abound. They can go permanent with the client if they want to. We're not seeing a lot of that. We tested this in several markets where we would run a traditional temp-to-hire job. Full benefits. This is all exciting. In 90 days, you're going to be permanent with this. And then we ran the flex job. 300 Mm. people applied for the permanent job. 1,200 people applied for the flex job. So we Mm. have yet to go into small towns, big towns across the United States and not be able to find enough workers in a 3.5% unemployment rate. When everybody else is suffering and they can't get enough people, we have an abundance of people because they're crying for that. When you look at the job reports over the last four months that all the jobs that have been created, what is it, 240,000 average, I think, a month, 
74% of those people came from sidelines. They weren't looking for work. So we have to be creative in business now to say, what do the people want? If you can't get enough of them, then you've got to turn to say what's important. Well, guess what? It ends up win-win on both sides. The client wins because they get the worker, and we have a return rate of 95%. They don't go away because they know they can do it. Let's say they do get another job, but they want to supplement, or they lose the job and they want to come back, or they had another baby, they stayed out. Whatever their life is at that moment, they don't ever give up holding the app on their phone. Mm-hmm. And, and you gave yeah. really two examples of, of how you went about this in an anything but typical way, yes. right? The, so the eight-hour workday, I mean, that was Henry Ford popularized that, right. and that's so he could have three shifts throughout the day and keep his factories running. Life has changed a little bit since then. Yes. And the second thing that I think is really important is you gave dignity back. And really what you did is you solved your client's problem by empowering these these people that yes. were looking for jobs and you gave the empowerment and and the control back to them so they could live a life with dignity and, and be proud about what they were doing and have yes. some control and some say yes. in their in their situation which is just it makes sense logically but it's just unbelievable how different that is compared to what the norm has been for so long yeah and one of the biggest you know new things come out of this every day we had a client recently that has 48% turnover in their normal workforce, which is about 600 people. And they came to us and they said, gee, before somebody exits, can we offer them to come to work for my work choice? Because we really don't want to lose what we've built mm, in yeah. training. And you know what? The majority of them do. Because they want an extra Saturday or they want mm-hmm. to cut back on their hours. Um, whatever the case may be, it's helping companies to retain the workforce by giving them flexibility. So we, our tagline is, we make flexibility work. Love that. And you know what's interesting is you have kind of unlocked some secret sauce, I think, from the employer standpoint as well as the employee standpoint. Having been in a manufacturing facility where my last sales turnaround if you will was where we had high turnover three shifts um, it was very difficult work sometimes dangerous work etc finding people that would do it for that price was always a challenge yes. having quality issues that were directly tied to the engagement of that worker was always a big deal and so if you're always cycling people through there that's a problem but also i think from the employer standpoint no overtime i mean huge Huge. financial benefit immediately but then you've kind of uberized and put the power back in the person to where they can choose when to turn on the uber sign and when not exactly i think it was just brilliant and so when we met I thought, oh my goodness, you are sitting on the nose cone of a rocket. You know, yeah. I mean, like, and and you are. Yes. Which is really an amazing thing. So you, um, I want to hear a little bit more about um, just the, you've you've never done anything easy, I don't think. No. And you've, you've persevered <laughs> a lot. I question myself all the time. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, we just had a, uh, a a panel here at BGW where you were one of the panelists, and one of the things that we were talking about was growth. And uh, we're talking about kind of competitive advantage here, which does fit into growth. But we talked about kind of your story of 32 years and 
seven companies and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, you know, you follow trends. Um, if you stay status quo, you're you're never going to grow. Um, and it's not even just about growth. I heard several of the other panelists echo this, and it's really about doing it the right way mm. and creating the right thing first. And growth kind of follows that. But um, when we first, and I say we, my husband and I founded the company, so. When we first um, got to a point where we said, what do we want to be when we grow up? We were really only in two states, and we had about four offices. And we said, um, oh, we want to be a national company. <laughs> it's like, well, how are you going to do that? So we really <laughs> set out with a coach to to lay out a plan. Um, was, how are you going to get there? And one of the first things was to go hire somebody who'd done that. And um, we hired Todd 11 years ago now as our COO, and he's still my COO. And through that time, we have created so many brands. Um, we tried the scientific division. We didn't, that didn't get off the ground. Um, we did the transportation, which did get off the ground, road dog drivers, and we did sell it. Um, and we tried a marketplace for truck drivers, Blue Bloodhound, which didn't make it. Um, we were too early for the time, and it was the 1099 model. And I do want to reiterate that my work choice is a W-2 model, so they're my employees. So yep. when I put them out, they're fully covered. Whereas the 1099 has had so many issues around California, uh, Chicago, New Jersey. So, um, but saw that as a real need. Still see it as a real need, but we were before our time. We were just mm-hmm. a little ahead of our time when it came to that. So uh, it's more around... Um, Seeing failure is not a failure, but hey, I learn from it and move on. So let's piggyback off that because in that, that Inc. Magazine article also, you had a couple of really big quotes and interesting quotes of thinking large, right? So in there, one of the ideas was, hey, we're going to be a unicorn, right? We're going to be this billion dollar uh, privately owned company. Every aspect of, of your journey is thinking extremely large and thinking outside the box. Where did that mindset come from, and how have you developed that over the over the years to make it a strength of yours? You said the keyword strength. Yeah. So um, there's something called strength finders, and um, <laughs> I took it many many years ago, but I never really paid attention to what it said. And um, I had a coach that said, "Hey, you know what? You you need to take this." I said, well, "I took that. I took that. I know what that is." They said, can you even recite your top five? Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't. So really going back to that, my number one is connectedness, which is my radar out there and who's doing what. And really having faith around things is what connectedness means. But my number two is futurist. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, There it is. <laughs> there, there, there's something in there. <laughs> and when you think about that, it's like I'm always thinking about the next thing. My leaders always say to me when I come into their office, it's always um, they call me into the office to tell me something and I tell them five other things. <laughs> and they go, can we just do this thing first? So I'm always thinking like that. I don't know where that came from or if it's just innate in my talents um, that I was given. I was born with that. Mm-hmm. So I'm always thinking about that. And I'm a maximizer, which means that I've always got to maximize the best out of everything and keep it keep it going. So when you when I look at my top five strengths, it took me 25 years in business to understand how to plug those into my leadership. Mm, yeah. 
Knowing so, knowing is very different than applying. It, it it's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. It's exactly what mm-hmm. it is. So um, I I think that's it. And hence I will say that every single employee has to take the strength finder, and every single employee has to spend at least thirty minutes with me on a Zoom call talking about their strengths, mm-hmm. and that has proven to be one of our biggest growth things with our employees is once you understand because you may have a talent that you were born with but if you don't somebody hasn't named it for you and you don't understand what that means you really need to have somebody help you take that to the next level life experiences school parents friends can say things to you to squash those things in you Mm. and you don't let them come out you don't develop them so my mother always said to me you're awful bossy (laughs) <laughs> now I am the boss. Right, so, right. I mean, but I never, I was, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to, I'm a Southern girl. I'm not supposed to be heard. So mm. for a long time I sat on boards and I would, I would, wouldn't interject things. I would be very quiet. I'd go behind the scenes and do stuff, but I wouldn't be outward with mm. it because I didn't think that was right. And yet that was a talent that I was given. So I think a lot of times that we can go through life and not develop those talents that we have because we haven't put ourselves in an opportunity yeah. to use them. Isn't that amazing that a societal norm can just completely uh, shut down a, a big aspect of who you are just yes. because that's what you've been told your whole life. Right. And that happens with everybody out there, no matter if it's in the United States or anywhere else or south or north, that you always have these societal norms. And I think that's one of the big themes that Gary and I are, are trying to expose, that you don't need to just go with what's typical and what's normal. Question everything in your life and figure out what actually mm. fits you. There it is. And grow. Constantly yeah. grow. Yeah. Um, Sean Akers wrote a book called Happiness. He's uh, studied in uh, Harvard for 14 years and came out with this book. And the one quote that stuck with me forever is, joy comes from fulfilling potential. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um which kind of leads to one of the things I want to talk about. Ben, you talked a little bit about it on the front end of this, but it's your book called Creating a World of Difference. Uh, I've read it. Thank you. I have a signed copy. <laughs> As a former graphic designer, I'm drawn to visually uh, astute and beautiful works as well, and it's that too. Thank so you. there's lots of meat in it. It's your story. It's very engaging. It's a fun it's you you won't be able to put it down uh you'll you'll read it in one setting um but let's talk a little bit about where that came from and what made you decide hey i'm going to go ahead and tell this story because there are people that would say i'm not going i'm going to hide that part of my life right so i want to hear a little bit more about that well i was one of those hiding that because i thought people would think less of me if they knew my story so um, I'm serving on the chamber board here in Charlotte. I'm, you know, out there in business. And it's like, if anybody knew that I quit school and had a baby at 16 and I didn't go to college and all these things, they would think less of me. So I was not being authentic. I was telling the big lie, which a lot of us do, is we live in this world of fantasy of if, um, if I can get people to think of me in a certain way, it's going to somehow make me that person so I had an event that occurred um I kept watching that show Extreme Home Makeover Mm. you know the one that they rebuild the houses for people and I would cry my eyes out and it was kind of a funny thing with my daughter she'd bring the box of Kleenex every Sunday night and go okay here we go it's time for the (laughs) 
And I thought to myself, what, what's wrong? I had survived a lot of failures. Um, I was in the best place of my life. I had a beautiful home on the lake, a new car, my husband, my family, my health. Everything was great. And yet I was empty. There was something really missing at that time in my life. Hmm. And so I hired a coach, and um, they said to me, you know, maybe you need to pick up a hobby. Maybe, maybe that's what it is, you know. And so I'd already understood what rock stardom was in landing the big account, but it didn't last. Hmm. You know, it's not yeah. the kind of thing that continues. You do lose the accounts, <laughs> and bad things happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, that wasn't it. So I thought, oh, I need to paint. So I started painting, oil paintings. But they weren't little 8 by 10s They were so big they didn't fit in the SUV. Okay, so I kind of go over the top a little bit, a little type A. And at the same time, I'm trying to figure out what this thing is. So I'm buying every book off the shelf on happiness and what is it and why do I feel this way. I mean, I had my faith. It wasn't that. There was something missing. And about that time, my best friend's daughter was a senior in high school. And they were talking about healthy relationships. And she knew my background. And she said, would you come speak to my class about your experience? And I said, yes. And then I thought, (laughs) oh, my gosh, what have I done? I'm going to go talk about this. So I called the local shelter for domestic violence, and I said, can you send somebody with me? Because what if they ask me a question? I I don't know anything about it except what I experienced. So she came with me, and little did I know, she was the CEO of Safe Alliance, which is the um, largest domestic violence and um, sexual um, um, rape crisis in in the whole area from Mecklenburg. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, I'm on the board. Next thing you know, they said, hey, you know what? We we only have 3,200 square feet for all these women, and we're putting them in hotels, and we're turning them away. We need to build a new um, center. We've done our study. We need to raise $10 million. And it was night. It was two thousand eight. We good, all know what was time. happening. Wow. Good timing, right? But you know what? We plowed through that. We raised the ten million dollars. We opened the new center. We have one hundred eight beds now, hmm. and um, people can stay there up to six months. They don't get shoved out after thirty days and risk going back into a situation of death. So, it was really exciting. But what I learned from that was, joy comes from serving others, hmm. and it was like wow it's that simple and I became authentic and in telling my story I can't tell you how many people I was in a little retail store one day and the woman comes up to me and she goes oh Tana I just have to thank you for that article you did in the Lake Norman Times and she said "Um, I gave it to my girlfriend who's been in a domestic violence relationship for 20 years and she finally left him I didn't even know this woman so I realized that we all have stories. Every one of us have a story to tell. Every one of us has something that can help somebody else. And it's just having the courage to say, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell it. And, and, and prior to that speech, really the only people that knew your story were the ones, friends and family that were close to you? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I had kept that very, very hidden. So looking back, you see all the things that have come from it. But after you gave that speech, do you remember what that feeling was? Oh, yeah. It was like this box that opened up it was like this Mm. um clarity of where I was to be and who I was and that was kind of the beginning of my journey of purpose really that's that's really Mm. when it all began and that was like uh, 2006 so when that was a a big milestone moment yes unlocked the and opened up the box you had been painting paintings that wouldn't fit in an SUV, which <laughs> right? that doesn't surprise me, don't you? <laughs> um, 
How and when did you decide, hey, I'm going to put that and I'm going to put that out even further into a book? I, I don't know. Again, it was one of those goals that I had early on that I wanted to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew at some point I didn't know it was going to be telling my story. Um, I just knew somehow, some way, I knew I was supposed to write a book. And I cannot explain that. I don't know where it came from. Um, but it was probably, I was probably 17, 18 years old when I said that to myself. Someday I'm going to write a book. Hmm. I, I don't know why. And I didn't aim to write that. It just was time. And it was time to, for, and it took me years to do that. That didn't, you know, it sounds so simple, but it took four years probably in the making to actually publish. I think that's wonderful. The other thing that you said something that I want to kind of cue back into, which is you said everybody has a story. Yes. And I truly believe that. I also truly believe that many people think that their story isn't worth telling. Right. And um, none of us are the the focal point for everybody, but we, we can impact somebody because of the uniqueness of our story. Yes. And what I've seen with you is you've taken the good and the difficult and it is part of your story and you're using it to serve somebody else, which I think is a really powerful thing. And, um, you know, one other thing that I want to just mention is when you're talking about StrengthsFinder and visionary or futurist kind of thinking, Many CEOs that I've seen that have not seen the success levels that you have uh, suffer from shiny object syndrome, where they are just chasing, because they have that gift of, but you have also the gift of maximizing. So help me understand a little bit more on the focus that has been a counterbalance to the futuristic thinking. It's easy. It's one word. It's purpose. Mm. If you don't know your purpose, you're never going to be able to get rid of that shiny object syndrome (laughs) because you have to know why you're doing what you do. When people know why they do what they do, they're happier. And that's what I want from every employee that we have in our company. And we're trying to figure out how to take it even to the level of all the contingent workers that we have. How do you help them understand that, that, that everybody has a purpose? And when you realize what it is, mine is igniting joy. When you come to a two-word purpose statement, mine is igniting joy. How can I ignite joy in everybody I touch? Mm. So (laughs) it took me years, though. This didn't come from just a, um, Mm. hey, I'm going to figure out what my purpose is. And I fought that for years because nothing was coming clear. And um, took a lot of years (laughs) (laughs) to really get to that. That's an important thing, one one other thing, just because... Um, a lot of pe- there's a lot of talk about purpose out there, and the millennials are gobbling it up, which I love about whether they are that age or just the millennial mindset. All right, because right. I'm not a millennial, but I think I still have that. But there is this notion of oh, I'll read this book, I'll go to this seminar, I'll do this exercise, and I'm good. Yeah. And what you are, what I hear about your story is. There's a crockpot mentality that has happened of simmering, not as Charlie Maloof says, not microwave. Right, right. So it's a journey. Mm -hmm. I don't think you ever hit the destination. No, that makes sense. And one of the things that you just hit on too, and and I've noticed I think three or four times already, uh, is the empowerment aspect. So with these 1099s, you're empower or W2s. I mean, you're you're empowering them. 
And now through the book, through speaking, through telling your truth, all of the, the people listening, it's like it's like watching a movie, right? The, the hero's journey that you hear in StoryBrand. You're able to put yourself out there and be vulnerable and authentic, and people relate to that, and it empowers them to live a truth a truthful life that they probably wouldn't otherwise if they didn't if that lady didn't get that article and, and feel empowered enough to escape that domestic violence relationship. That's right. that's right, and that's why I wanted to take it another level with my employees, and that's yeah. why they take the test and they spend their 30 minutes with me now we're figuring out what the next step is of that but remember i've owned my business 32 years it took me this long to feel that comfortable about myself to give it to others mm-hmm. so it's um it's it's something you have to figure out on your own and once you do man you unleash and it's incredible so i want to ask about uh really a difficult aspect of this so you've talked about being futuristic and maximizing and all of that can be very daunting, but it can also be very spread out, right? Gary, you talked about your focus as well. So let's dig in a little bit. How do you have your core values act as your North Star? Um, core values is an interesting subject into itself because mm-hmm. I used to think core values was something that you just picked words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, what, like, what looks good on a billboard. Yeah, let's yeah. go through eight or nine different websites and find the ones that I like and we'll just <laughs> use those. And I realized it had to be an exercise from the heart. It had to be something that had a story and a meaning for me. So, you know, one of the things is seeing the awesomeness in others. And a story I'll tell very quickly when I was 15 and I had to go to my mother and tell her I was pregnant. Now, remember, my parents were the pillars of the community. They were, uh, she played the organ every day in the church. My dad was a deacon. I was the chaplain of my school. And now I'm going to my mother telling her I'm pregnant. So a really fun conversation. Yeah, really fun. And, um... (laughs) You know, I started off by saying, you won't love me anymore. Hmm. And she said, I think I will. You Why don't you tell me what you have to say? And I said, I think I'm pregnant. And she said, I think you are too. And I said, what do you mean you think I am? She said, well, you've gotten sick every morning for the last two weeks. And she turned to me and said, hmm. I am so excited because I was afraid I was going to be too old to be a grandmother hmm. one day because she had me later in life. Now, you know that's not what she was thinking at the time, but it was that unconditional love that she gave me at that moment that made me realize we have to give that in everything we do in business as well. So that seeing the awesomeness in others has to have a meaning for me. Now, my employees have to take that and find the meaning within themselves, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're working on now is to take every value and what does that mean what do those words mean to you? Uh, never settle is another one. Say it, mean it, do it. I mean, these are all things that everybody should have a story around that means something to them. Because if it doesn't come from the heart, it's not a value. Boy, that's really good. What's interesting about that story is your mother modeled exceptional leadership. Yes. Exceptional. Um, and when you see leadership like that, it's hard to not choke up and want to stand up and applause. Yes. Yeah. And so hats off to your mom. Thank you. Hats off to you for continuing in that vein. And the ripple effect that that has, think about that. The ripple effect of how your mother handled that one conversation. Yes. Yes. It's truly amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I want to throw something to you, Gary. So we've been talking a lot about the uh, the competitive advantage and throughout your story, Tana. Yes. Um, 
Gary, that's a big problem that a lot of people face, right? It's difficult to really figure out what your competitive advantage is because self-awareness is a strength that a lot of people don't know how to develop. So, Gary, how have you helped people figure out what their competitive advantage is? So that way, maybe the listeners can take a tactical thing or two away of, of how they can actually start figuring that out for themselves. Well, I'm going to throw that back to Tana <laughs> because of the conversation that we had okay. um, about why she has hired coaches. And I've been fortunate to be one of those along the journey. Um I've got a friend that says it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar, right. but I like Tana's analogy, so you know where I'm going with this, I know Tana, exactly so I want, hear, <laughs> I want to hear your point. Well, part of it is because my husband and I are in business together, but it, it's funny, you know, when, when things are down and you're in the hole, I say, when you're deep in the hole, you can only have one person in there at a time, so somebody has to be on the ledge to pull you out. Otherwise, you're going to sink because nobody's going to be there to rescue you. <laughs> so ultimately, it's building that uh, personal board of directors. Um, I call it that because they really are personal at that point. Even though they're business, yeah. if I'm not leading right and I'm not in the right place, then nobody else is going to be underneath me as the leader. So who's going to pull me out of that hole? And so having that coach to make you see things in a different light and help you pull yourself out of it is critical. It's critical along the journey. So I'm going to go back to that to answer, because I think you answered that really, really well. But I want to add a little more color to that, which is uh, when Robert Fish and I sat down and we were looking across the commonalities of all the folks that he was coaching and that I was coaching, we, we looked for commonalities. Okay. And those commonalities were really interesting when we like unpacked them. One was a humility and coachability. Um, and you can't train for that. You either have the switch go on and you embrace it, or you have to put up the shield and the armor that prevents anybody from really seeing who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and and so even your story reflects, like you, you hit that pretty early on, which is really cool, but it's an evolutionary process too. But coachability was one and humility. Then what we found was a, kind of a voracious learning. And I heard that from StrengthsFinder, what you're talking about, and, and you are a well-read person. But that also kind of goes back to that I haven't arrived yet mentality. Um, Then what we also found was they were all involved in peer-to-peer boards. And you talked about kind of a board of advisors. Mm -hmm. You're part of WPO. Mm -hmm. You helped launch that 20 years ago. Uh, But what we found was everybody was in a paid peer-to-peer group or a decisive mastermind type of a group. And again, there's humility going on there. And then Another thing that was really interesting is we found um, a commonality was um, a, a, a uniqueness and per- level of personalization. So everybody, um, they were either, um, they had eyeglass collections or they modified their cars or boats or something like that, or they were racing motorcycles on weekends or something but there was something unique in that they were kind of embracing a passion and and the final thing was there was uh, a commonality where um, kind of healthy lifestyle 
um, fitness, uh, nutrition. It didn't mean that they were all on keto and, and doing CrossFit every day, but, but there was a, a level of commonality in that too. And so everything I know about Tana like fits there, you know, and, he, and same way with your husband. So with Mike, so anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I just want to throw some yeah, color. No, 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 that's perfect. So if you're listening, that, that theme is taking care of yourself and being open to get advice and guidance from people outside because they're going to have a much better perspective than what you think is going on with yourself. So, so no, I love those themes. That's perfect. Thanks. Yeah, I once got the title from a coach, uh, Seeker on Steroids. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, let's go back to you, Tana, on something that you mentioned earlier. You talked about mentoring other women. So uh, it clearly means a lot to you, but it's also something that you had to make a conscious choice because it's taking away from the day-to-day right so more on that personal level why did you decide to do that and and what does that look like for you now I don't know that it was a open decision it just started happening Um, I guess as you start to um, get out there and people hear your name and they know you've had some successes they kind of reach out so it's being open to that but I don't know that it I think it it enhances what I do more than it distracts from what I do because when I'm helping somebody else I'm helping myself being on your panel today I probably got more out of that than the people sitting there Hmm. because it makes me think it makes me take ideas back when you have to coach somebody it's amazing what you get out of it so I think it's kind of selfish that I do it because I think I get a lot out of it (laughs) Yeah. No, no, no. But you, you're at the same time, you're a phenomenal, um, not, I don't want to say blueprint, but you're a phenomenal example for these women that are trying to find their own way in a, a similar type journey of how do they be a leader in a world where societal norms are starting to catch up, but are yes. still well behind, yes. especially on the female perspective of True. what that role should look like. True. Right. We're still doing the Henry Ford eight-hour workday, and <laughs> and at that same time, there are people like you that are really tr- blazing their own trails. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's incredible that you're the example to help this the the next female or, or woman entrepreneur be able to do it their own way. Right. And so. I'll tell you that that in itself has been a journey. I mean, when I look back on it, you know, I was raised in the South. Um. And there were certain norms. I mean, in mm-hmm. fact, when it was time to go to school, you could be a teacher, you could be a nurse, you could be, you know, right. there it really wasn't a lot of options for yeah. females uh, at my age back then. And then it was the messaging of the husband is the head of the household, and you're somewhat subservient to that. I mean, I grew up in that environment. So when my husband and I are in business together and... Um, Pretty much, I sat in the background, and he took the forefront. And one day, he and one of the coaches that we had sat down and asked me if I would take a lead role. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, why? I said, it'll ruin my marriage. Hmm. And I, wow. they, and, and my, my Mike is sitting there. He's going, no, that, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but it's these messages <clears throat> that I had had, and as women, we do get them. And I don't know that this generation has it as strong as my generation did right. but it's the kind of thing where ooh, I'm not supposed to 
be out there. I'm not supposed to be doing that. So I've had to grow into this position. And that was um, that was actually 2000 that uh, when that occurred. Hmm. And I took the lead, but I was very hesitant to lead. I mean, it probably took me 10 more years to feel like I could truly be that voice and that person. Mm, to, so, to grow into it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have grown into this over 32 years. Yeah. And, and I think you said this generation doesn't have it as bad, but I think it's because of, of trailblazers like True. yourself that have set that precedent that you don't need to fall into homemaker, teacher, or nurse. Right. Right. There's so many more right. opportunities out there. And and be passionate and be in, in, in on purpose with your integrity and your culture and everything will fall into place. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd like to interject, and this is for any of the guys out there listening, um, pay attention to Tana Green um, because um, this is not a message just for female entrepreneurs. This is for uh, entrepreneurs or leaders, quite frankly. You don't even have to own your own business or have that gene necessarily or inkling, but to, to, to lead by example, there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And I'll tell you this, uh, leadership knows no gender boundaries. Um, the best boss I've ever had in my life is still one of the top female execs at Bank of America. And um, Helen still to this day exudes the kind of leadership that I want to uh, portray. Yeah. So I would just say, hey, if you are uh, teachable, coachable, and interested in voracious learning mm-hmm. learn from tana green yeah thanks i've i've realized throughout the years that i learn more from people that looked look and act differently than me right they've got a different background they have different perspectives uh, i run an advisory board kind of like the peer-to-peer thing you were mm-hmm. talking about and there's a uh, this female entrepreneur that runs a couple businesses and i get new nuggets from her every time we talk and it's just because she looks at things differently and she solves problems in a way that I'm not used to. And it's incredible because it expands my leadership ability and, and my entrepreneurship journey, I guess, because I'm willing to open up to people that have the different backgrounds and have the different perspectives. So I think you hit on a really important topic there, Gary. Yeah, I think, um, you know, learning should have no age barrier and it should have no right. gender bias. Right. Yeah. It's it's more of the more of the mentality that you should be seeking out than than a an avatar, right? You don't need to find somebody that, that looks a certain way or anything like that. It's who are the people that have the right mentalities, who are the people that are trying to grow every day and, and continue doing the things that are important to them the right way. You know, one one other thing that I want to do, I'm gonna take us down a little different direction, but we talk a lot about, and it's a passion of mine, that business should be fun. And that doesn't mean you throw a bowling alley in the place and all of a sudden you've got a popcorn machine and bowling alley and everything's fun. No, I don't think that's what it is. I think that you provide clarity of where are we going, you get really honed in on your purpose and the core values that mean something to you. Like, I love your core values that are not taken from anybody else's website, which right. I really, really dig. Um, but you, you get those things in alignment and you get the right people around you yes. and you start executing on a few things and guess what, man, life is fun. And it, so, and you exude fun. fun. Yeah. I mean, you really do. And you're, you're, you're a, a tough business woman, fair, but I mean, like you're a good business person. Talk to me about what makes it fun for you. 
uh, makes me fun when I hear um, the employees talk about how important this is to have something like this in their lives. That mm. that probably does it more for me. We hear accolades all the time from the clients, which is the best other side of it. But just hearing somebody say, I was able to make my light bill this month because I was able to pick up enough hours to do that where, where else would I have gone to do that? So it, it just... I don't know. I think it's knowing that people are being served and we're doing the right thing. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, I don't I don't want to make this negative, but I want to highlight a uh, more the hurdles and difficulties aspect of this journey because we've been talking very positive for, for almost an hour, yeah. which is great, but all of the listeners also need to know this isn't sunshine and rainbows, right? It, you start this business 32 years ago and it's just been a straight trajectory up the whole time. So No, it has can, not been. <laughs> so can you take us through one or two of, of those sure. those difficult times in your journey? Sure. I mean, I think that um, one of the biggest ones that sticks out is when we started this business, we actually bought a franchise um, and it was uh, Remedy who since sold. Uh, they were public and they sold but we had a 15-year contract, and at the end of that contract, they were supposed to buy us back. They wanted to grow on the East Coast. They were mainly West Coast, so we were actually the first franchise they ever sold. And um, we were to go grow and be, and they were buy back, and that's when I was to go off and do my calling. Okay. I didn't know what that was, but I knew there was a calling. Yeah. And somehow, again, the messaging that I got is that money was bad. So you couldn't have in the same space, you couldn't have um, calling and financial success. Don't ask me where that came from, but somewhere that, that, that those two things just didn't come together. And so they went public about a year before the contract, um, our contract ended. They brought in a new CEO. It was very clear that um, he wasn't going to buy back. Hmm. And then 9-11 hit. Wow. So all of this happened in a six-month period of time. And when 9-11 hit, we were mainly manufacturing, and half of the business went overnight gone. They let those employees go. So now we're facing six months to the end of the contract. We know they're not going to buy us out. We've created a lifestyle after 15 years of success, and we had to make a decision. And it's, um, do you go on your own? Or do you just go working for somebody else again? Hmm. And that was probably one of the toughest times. And I think we kept the wine business in business at that time because we were drinking so much <laughs> of it. But really, it was like, well, this is this is not this is not what's supposed to happen. And you know, I think that part of the failures and things that you the hard times you go through is you get something in your mind of the path of the way it's supposed to be, and that is not what the universe is going to deliver. Hmm. You can take that word universe however mm-hmm. you want, but ultimately there is a certain path and your gut has to be attuned to what that is. What I didn't realize was my purpose and my calling was in the business. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest aha moment was why can't you be doing your calling and make money and infect a lot more yeah. people. So mm. I will say that the the that was one of the biggest points where, I mean, we almost lost everything. We had to sell our home. We had to move into a different home. I took I had to take my daughter out of private school. I mean, it was a very, very hard time for us. 
Um, they say businesses fail three times till you make it. Well, we failed at least three. We just happened to hold on to the same business. Right. So, <laughs> so it's not always rosy. And But if you're open to it, you will learn so much through that process. And if you don't have those times, I just don't think it takes you to the ultimate leader you can be. Yeah, I, I think that mental barrier around money is, is pretty common. I, I certainly saw it. My uh, grandfather on my dad's side Every time he would drive by a, a nice car, a Cadillac, something like that, he would he would drive by and he would say, "What a crook!" And so my father ran his own business his whole life, but you could almost see the self sabotage of never taking it to the next level or never making it the next step because that's what he grew up with. Right. Hmm. And, and so I think that mental barrier of money equals bad yes. is, is very common out there, and even if it's subconscious, it's something that's so ingrained that it's. I'm just like you said, I'm sure very difficult to fight through yes. and realize that it, it's completely different aspect because what you're doing as you're making money is dramatically improving the lives of everybody you're impacting. Right. And service can also mean writing a check to a nonprofit. That's yeah. what I realized too, is that the more money you make, the more impact you can make too. Mm-hmm. But there, you don't have to associate that with yeah. being a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Right. It allows you to do philanthropy exactly. and, and give back. Yep. Exactly. Well, you know, I want to put uh, an exclamation point on one of those things, which is I used to think kind of the same way where um, I was in the advertising business early on in my career and I I thought there's nothing of any sort of redemptive value in that at all. I kind of abhorred the business that I was in, but I was good at a number of things in that world, but I, I kind of compartmentalized family, business, church and civic mm-hmm. right yep. i compartmentalized those things and i i always felt like a man at war within himself absolutely and and i wasn't we weren't you know we weren't advertising things that i was you know in moral objection to or anything like that but i just would i always felt like i was less than or but what you've described is such a freeing thing where you can find purpose and meaning and it doesn't have to be after you leave the office. It can be in the office. It can be wherever. I yes. mean, you could sell your company tomorrow and your purpose is still the same. Yes. doesn't matter really what you're doing. But what I love is the fact that you can be your true and authentic self wherever you are. And it just happens to have a stage right now that's on business and it's impacting so many people. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's expanded into the nonprofit space and, yes. and writing a book and speaking yes. in front of people. And you've just found all these different outlets to uh, to be able to express your calling and, and empower other people. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's exciting. Yeah. So <laughs> I want to uh, I want to tie, tie a bow around this conversation. Okay. It's been phenomenal. But let's take a, a look or a vision to the future. You're a futurist, so so this should be right up your alley. What does the uh, the future look like for you? What are you working towards? What are you trying to achieve? Anything like that? Uh, pure joy. I want to have. I want to experience it myself, and I want people around me to experience it. And I can do that through my actions. I can do that through my business. So to me, the vision is the more we can get our message out there, and the more we can impact people in a positive way. That is the vision. That is the future. Ultimately. Um, as far as the business tool itself goes, I hope that we can offer what we offer in scheduling to the nonprofit side, where nice. they can put their volunteers on it and we can make an impact in communities 
by what we've built in technology. Yeah. So we're hoping that over the next year that will be our give back, that we'll be able to actually give that to. Because you think about it, even my daughter-in-law, who's a school teacher, says, I need that. And I said, what do you need it for? She goes, if I need volunteers to come into the school, you would not believe what they have to go through to get vetted, background check. Well, we have that as part of our process. Then they have to be put on a list and somebody has to call them. Well, they could literally just get a notification on their phone and say, hey, you want to volunteer today? You want to come read to the kids today? They can fill every one of those spots tomorrow. And the same thing with the soup kitchens and everywhere else. So my vision is that this will become um, a way of life for people that brings that dignity back and ultimately help in the nonprofit sector as well. Perfect. Anything from you, Gary? No, this has been phenomenal. Yeah. You are phenomenal, thank you. Tana. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for taking time to be with us. And uh, you're, you and your story are truly anything but typical. So it's just an honor to have you. Yeah, th- thank you for sharing. Where can people find you if they want to reach out, if they want to follow you, anything like that? Um, TanaGreen.com yeah. is the easiest way, but MyWorkChoice.com is the ultimate. So <laughs> MyWorkChoice.com, you can reach me, and um, the book is on Amazon, Creating World of Difference. Perfect. And all of the proceeds go to nonprofit. Fantastic. We'll put links for all of that in the show notes. Super. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank Thanks. you so much.